Good afternoon. It's good to lift up these praises together, uh, uniting our voices. I'd invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews. Last week, some of you weren't here, but last week we began that rich section at the beginning of chapter 12, verses 1 to 4. We only made one and a half verses in, and today, Lord willing, we'll we'll finish it up all the way through uh, verse 4. And really what the writer's doing is giving this dramatic imagery of a foot race, an athletic competition of which we're all familiar. Just after World War II in Germany, there was a private by the name of Raymond Cote um, from the 12th Infantry. And doing maneuvers, he was put on sentry duty to guard some pontoons on the banks of the Rhine River. Because of an oversight, he was not relieved for six days. He relied on farmers traveling back and forth to actually give him food, but he stayed at his post because he remembered what he was trained to do, to quit my post only when properly relieved. It rained heavily, he got hungry, but he stayed there. He persevered, he endured, as it were. And and when he came back, his commanding officer praised him for his diligence and for staying put. But the others in his platoon uh, called him the guy with the hole in the head. In other words, his stupidity for staying there for six days. It obviously wasn't that important. Why do I share that? Well, we followers of Jesus also need a strong determination to finish the race that is set before us. Wavering and quitting are not options. Our commanding officer, the Lord Jesus Christ, has set the path before us that we are to go. And we must do so, and the only way we will do so is fixing our eyes on Jesus. And so let's go ahead and read verses 1 to 4. Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Let us run the race with endurance set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. And he has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. For you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. Let's pray together. Our Father, we ask that you would meet with us now, that you'd give us clear understanding and insight into this text. Most of all, that your Spirit would come near and convict where that is needed and to encourage where that is needed. Strengthen us, O God. Give us a a, a spirit of perseverance and endurance, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Perseverance is the hallmark of a genuine interest in Christ. Really, that's the writer to the book of Hebrews. He's he's, he's encouraging us to persevere, to, to put forth as much human effort as though our salvation depended upon our own effort, 
but at the same time that it's really God who will enable us to persevere. But he does both at the same time throughout this book, and it's, it's a glorious thing. You'll remember the context, of course, way back in chapter 10, um, at that break from verse 19, since we have confidence to enter the holy place, let us draw near with a sincere heart, full assurance, having our hearts sprinkled, our bodies washed. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, because he who promised is faithful. Let us consider, premeditate how to stimulate one another unto love and good deeds, not forsaking the assembling. And then he gave that warning. And then what does he do? Chapter 11 is one grand illustration. One big illustration of of not shrinking back. Look at all these who have gone before, beginning with Abel all the way through. And then ending, really, with those who were stoned and tortured and sawn in two and and went about destitute and afflicted and and ill-treated. All of these men of whom the world is not worthy. In chapter 12, he really comes back and, and follows up from the end of chapter 10 those exhortations. Therefore, in light of all of these witnesses, let us run this race. Remember I said it's not a stroll. It's not, it's not a, a crawl. It's a run, right? And, and it means to, to run with relative speed in contrast to walking. And so, that's how we are to run this race of the Christian life. The word race there is, is this um, intense athletic contest and competition. Uh, the, the root of that word is sometimes used of wrestling and that kind of thing. But how are we to run this race? Laying aside every weight. Laying aside uh, encumbrance, which could be legitimate things. Good things that aren't prohibited in the Word, but they might hinder the race. But then also, to lay aside the sin that so easily entangles. We said that's probably likely more our besetting sins. The sins that, that you might be prone to and you might be prone to are different than the ones I might be prone to. To lay those things aside. See, it's one thing to look back at this hall of faith and you see Abel and Noah's... Per- talk about perseverance. A hundred years building an ark before there was a drop of rain. That's perseverance. That can encourage me on my few years on this earth to press on. You look at Abraham and his faith and the promises and and Isaac and Jacob and Moses. Moses, who who rather endured ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. That's somebody I want to get behind. And, 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 And it inspires us. And even these that have been so persecuted... But the main thing for us, and as great as that inspiration is, and you think about church history, and I gave some examples of martyrs even last week, and, 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 and as much as that inspires us to run the race, the main thing we are to be focusing on is fixing our eyes on Jesus. The par, ex, the par uh, example of perseverance. And so he says, fixing our eyes on Jesus. A beautiful thing. And remember, that word has the idea of of moving aside distractions and focusing only upon that. So it's both. It's setting aside distractions 
and focusing on the one thing. So the structure of these verses are the, the main clause is the let us run at the end of verse 1. It's a, it has the force of an imperative, but as we come to our text today and we see we're actually going to finish 2b and 3 and 4, but we're not going to go in chronological order. I'll explain that in a moment. But the, the, the verse 3, consider him, is a command. And we'll unpack that as we... He, the writer knows that some were getting ready to shrink back and to, to get out of the race, and so he encourages them. So our structure is going to be three points. 3A is our first point. Um, we're going to look at 2B and 3B, or the middle of those two verses, under our second point. And then we will consider 3B and verse 4 as our motives to finishing the race well. So first, carefully consider Jesus. Secondly, the anticipation of future joy motivated the work of Christ. And then lastly, practical application, motives for us on how to finish the race. So first of all, carefully consider Jesus. This word, consider him. Notice the word for. For, that, that connects it. It's very connected to verse 2. It's in light of these things, now we are to consider him. Some may be more tempted and weary on the race that are ready to get out of the race, but, but those that they quit the race and get out of the race, they, they ultimately prove what? that they never were in the right race of the Christian life. The writer is warned several times back in chapter 2 and verse 1, for this reason we must pay closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. Chapter 3 and verse 12, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away. From the living God. The proof that you're in the race, brethren, is that you finish the race. Right? Judas was in a race, but it wasn't the right race. He didn't finish the race of the Christian life. Demas, having loved this present world, Paul says, has left the team there and proved himself to be an apostate. You must finish the race. And we need these motives unto endurance. Jerry Bridges has written, true grace always produces vigilance rather than complacency. It always produces perseverance rather than indolence. Paul makes reference to this in Romans 3, a familiar text. And not only this, but we exalt in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about what? Perseverance. And perseverance, proven character. And proven character, hope. Jerry Bridges again. Endurance and perseverance are qualities we would all like to possess, but we are loath to go through the process that produces them. You know what he's saying there. I just read it out of verse, or out of Romans. At least that's what I thought of when I was reading this section of Bridges. But It's the tribulation, it's the difficulties of this life that form us and motivate us to persevere on. And so he says, even to the hearers here, 
to consider Jesus. Take a careful reckoning of the Lord Jesus Christ, your Savior. This word only occurs here in the Greek New Testament. It is an imperative, as I said, a command. It means to reason or to have careful deliberation. Another lexicon says, to think or reason with thoroughness and completeness. It's to think out carefully, to reason. It's where we get logarithm from. Uh, You might think of a deep mathematical complex problem of which you've got to analyze from all different angles. And that's what the writer is saying. It has an extra nuance that it, it, it means to reckon or to consider by way of comparison. Okay? And the word for, of course, introduces the reason for this exhortation to look off and away from anything that would distract from Jesus and to focus upon him. You see, when we consider Jesus, we're considering everything of his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection. It encompasses all of that as we consider Jesus. As we consider Jesus when we read our Bibles. And we see and we read in Exodus 12, the Passover, and we see the Lord Jesus Christ, how that's a type and a metaphor, right, of Christ. We want to consider Jesus from every angle and not just willy-nilly consider and move on. Deep contemplation, a thorough deliberation of what he has done. Christ, the mediator, which all points to the person and work of Christ. There was once a teacher training a child some time ago and, uh, to be focused. And the teacher got him a pitcher of water. And he was told to go to the, all the way through the marketplace, the hustle and bustle of the marketplace, to the far gate, and then to come back. And so, but don't spill any of the water. The water's filled to the rim. And so, obviously, he's, he's going very, very carefully, focused on this. The, the boy comes all the way back, and the teacher says, let me ask you, did you see the vendor that had the cobras down there? Did you see the one that had the fresh peaches? And the boy said, no, I didn't see any of that. My eyes were fixed on the rim of that pitcher because I could not spill one drop. That's the idea, you know, the implication here. That's the focus that we should strive for, to be so focused upon Christ and all that He has done. Do you see how this could fuel your prayers? The person of of Christ, His humanity, His deity, His deity before the incarnation, the wonder of the incarnation, and then His work on the cross. It could consume much of our time. What about you today? What difficulties, what trials are you going through? I don't think anybody that we know has been sawn in two, like at the end of chapter 11, or that was destitute in goat skins. You all look like you have rather nice clothes on. I don't see anybody here with sheep skins and goat skins, you know, and that kind of thing. But, but, but what are we going through? Maybe it's emotional turmoil. What are you experiencing now? Is there something even today that you're dreading about tomorrow? On Monday morning, we need to consider Him. We need to remember that there's a crown awaiting us as we're running this race, as we're 
fixing our eyes as we're considering and calculating carefully the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the only one that will get us to the end. But to know that there's a crown there, Paul says in Romans 8, I consider that the sufferings of this present life are not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed to us. And really the nuance here is as we consider Him, we're considering Him in the midst of our own difficulties. There's a sense in which we're comparing ourselves with the example of Jesus. Listen to one of the commentators, William Lane. The writer is well aware of the disheartened condition of his audience and is genuinely concerned that they might abandon the faith and the faith in the face of struggles confronting them. Back in chapter 10, just to kind of skip here, pause, remember, he says, but remember the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by being sharers of those who were so treated. You showed sympathy to the prisoners. You accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you yourselves have a better possession. He goes on to say, don't throw away your confidence. They, they, they knew what it was like to suffer. As we see in verse 4, they didn't suffer to the point of shedding blood yet, right? But So he invites the congregation to compare their experience to that of Christ. Consider him who what? Endured such hostility of sinners against himself. We must run with a patient perseverance the race that is marked out before us. Remember, we pointed that out in verse 1. The race that is what? Set before us. The race that is ordained for us, we might say. So that's our first point. Carefully consider Jesus. Secondly, the anticipation of future joy motivated Jesus' work on the cross. And I want you to go back to verse 2. We already looked at fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. But notice, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame. What is this joy that is set before Him? What, what, is, what, 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 what promised reward was there? Faith, you said earlier, is the, is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. In verse 6, and without faith, faith it's impossible to please Him, for he who comes to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of those that diligently seek Him. Joy is a feeling of inner gladness. A contentedness. It's, it's, it's something that you delight and rejoice in. And you, you might think of joy is different than earthly happiness, right? Because earthly happiness can be shaped by what? Your circumstances, right? Joy is something that no one can take from us. The cross at his time brought shame. Notice what he says here. He endured the cross despising the shame, the most shameful deaths. Even Paul says to the letter to the Philippians, even death on a cross, the, the worst possible way of dying ever invented by man. 
the most humiliating way, the most shameful way of dying. Jesus endured. He was sustained by the prospect that lay beyond the cross, that lay on the other side of the resurrection. He was sustained by that. He, he gave up present ease and comfort for future glory. What was the joy that He anticipated? Was it not our salvation? Was it not pleasing the Father? The Father gave Him a people, a people that He would die for. Was it not that He completed His work, as it says in John 17, the beautiful high priestly prayer, I've come to do Your will. And He completed it, accomplishing all that the Father's plan. Knowing that He has made us fit for glory. It says in chapter 10 and verse 10, For by this will He has been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Verse 14, For by one offering He has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. That's us. That's what He accomplished for us. Even in that prophetic text in Isaiah 53, in verse 11, it says, as a result of the anguish of His soul, Isaiah's writing 700 years before Christ, but notice this, as a result of the anguish of His soul, He will see it and be satisfied. By His knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, and He will bear their iniquities seeing it being satisfied the anticipation of that joy of knowing that he's done the father's will in totality secondly under this head jesus endured the cross and the hostility of sinners and just taking that in verse two he endured the cross despising the shame but then also in verse three notice he says who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself. We want to consider those. Remember the theme of endurance here. In verse 1, we are to run with endurance. Fixing our eyes on Jesus who endured the cross. And then here again, who endured such hostility of sinners. It was by faith that Jesus endured the cross and despising the shame. He persevered to his appointed end. And thus entered the glory of heaven. And as we'll see, he has sat down. Work accomplished. That's our next sub-point. So I don't want to jump ahead. What does this mean, this despising, the shame? It literally means to think down upon. It's uh, Even in the Greek, that's that's the nuance. It's to think against, to think down upon, to despise. And what a shame. We know what shame is, right? Jesus endured such shame. In the Garden of Gethsemane, it says that he was distressed and troubled. Really intense words. The Gospel of Luke says that as he was praying, he, he as it were, sweat drops of blood. Right? And then what does he do? He comes to his disciples, the inner circle, the three, and what are they doing? Sleeping. Can you not bear with me one hour? Goes and prays again. And, and the sleepy disciples... The shame before Pilate. You see that in John 19. You think of this hostility of sinners. Um, John 19 and 13 and following. Therefore, when Pilate heard these words, 
He brought Jesus out. He sat down in his judgment seat at the place called the pavement, but in Hebrew called Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover, and it was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold, your king! But they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. And so he handed him over to be crucified. The hostility of sinners! Crucify him! After three and a half years of earthly ministry of which he has been patient and teaching and healing and feeding, these religious leaders were hostile. It's Jesus Christ. We know what shame is as well. It's a wonder in this awesome scene. You, you think about it, the Savior bleeds. It's, it's a, 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 then what about on the cross itself? Humiliation and shame as He's nailed to the cross through the wrists, through the feet. And then as that cross is erected, and the, the, the bottom of the cross is put into that hole to hold it. And you can imagine having just been nailed, and the cross is coming up and plop! What that would do with the body weight on the spikes, and to die by suffocation, to be stripped naked, and to be there as the creator of the world nailed to a cross. Why? For your sin and for my sin. Talk about the shame. Talk about despising the shame. We are to consider Him when we run this race. When we have that difficulty. When we have that trial. That trial of which maybe just, I just want to quit. I, I just want to sit. I want to be done for a while. Right? We're tempted to do that. That's when we consider Him as motivation to press on. Shame. Some of us, many of us, I think, have shame from our childhoods, right? You think of a, a mother whose daughter went off to college and has come back, has announced that she's getting married, but she was impregnated out of wedlock. And, but she's getting married. And she's in the dress. Um, she's eight months pregnant, and the mother's sitting back. I envisioned my daughter from when she was a little baby to be a virgin and to be married in that such a way. But there she is with a big baby bump. You're happy for the marriage, but you're shameful for what has happened. Think of the engineer that had the $200,000 job at Qualcomm, and he gets laid off, and he's trying to provide for his family. He's working two jobs, delivering pizzas, and, and goes and, and delivers a pizza, and it's one of his colleagues that still has his job. And here he is with a Domino's hat on, <laughs> Shame. We all know what it's like. But for Jesus, how much more? In this hostility, it, it literally means to speak against, um, but it also has the idea in the face of opposition. It's this dispute. It's where we get the word dispute, um, even debate. But this controversy has an added sense of strife that it was involved in. Think of Jesus from Psalm 22. We read last week, but I am a worm and not a man, 
reproach of men, despised by people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag their head, saying, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let Him deliver Him. Let Him rescue Him, because He delights in Him. This is amazing, brethren. The one that endured these insults, the one that was bloodied by the Romans when he was beaten and given the crown of thorns, the the one that endured such hostility and mistreatment was at the same time the one, like Hebrews begins, the one that holds all things together by the word of his power. It's at the same time as he's enduring those insults and that abuse that, that he was the one that created these very men of which they were beating him. We can endure trials as we're running the race. Even whatever may be happening in your life, even right now, what will you do when, when the government says, and yes, I think it is a win, that the church cannot meet? Because the government has your safety in view, you may not meet. It's for your safety. Or that you need a vaccine passport, like in Lithuania, to even go into a store, much less to gather as a church, to to engage in anything socially. What will be our position now as 21st century Christians in Southwest America? We need to think now about this. Brother, we need to resolve now that we are not going to cave in and allow the government to tell us what we're, that, what, that we can't do what we're commanded to do in the Scriptures. It's time to stop being 21st century wimps and to stand up for what God has said, who we are and what we are to do. Charles Spurgeon says, ours is a trifling cross compared with what pressed him down. But even he endured it. He took it up willingly. He carried it patiently. He never rebelled against it. He never relinquished it. He bore the cross until the cross bore him. And then he bore death upon it. And he could say, it is finished. Let us do the same. Are you persecuted? Are you poor? Are you sick? Take up your appointed cross. This idea of enduring, there's an additional nuance here. It's in the the perfect tense here in verse 3, which is the idea of something that he has done, but the abiding results continue on. And it's the idea of not just a grim resignation to be passive, to grin and bear it, right? That might be the way we think of it, right? But it's a triumphant facing of difficult circumstances knowing that God will bring good out of it. It's a courageous gallantry which accepts suffering and hardship but turns them into grace and glory. It's the ability to endure when circumstances are difficult, not in a passive sitting down way and bearing, but bearing up in a way that honors and glorifies God. That's what we're called to do. And how often do we fail? Yes, we all do. But boy, what a testimony it is when somebody endures suffering like that and has and sees the end goal that this will bring glory to God somehow. 
We go back up to the end of verse 2. He endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. This is a perfect there also. This has the idea that he doesn't sit down and get up the next day and sit down. He sits down perpetually. His work is completed forever. And this is a a theme of which the writer has been emphasizing from the very beginning, chapter 1 and verse 3 in the prologue. When he had made purifications of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Several references throughout this book to Psalm 110, of which we read, and right there in verse 1, it talks about the priest sitting down. Many nuances throughout the different times referencing this. Chapter 8 and verse 1. Now the main point of what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God and the majesties in the heavens. Chapter 10 and verse 12. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. The emphasis here, brethren, that he sat down. He despised the shame. He accomplished the work. But he sat down. It's one of rest. It's one of great accomplishment. There's a joyful satisfaction who for the joy set before him endured the cross. And now he has sat down. Having sat down, looking back on that. Jesus reigns, even though we don't see him with our physical eyes, but we believe the word. It's not Caesar, it's not Gavin Newsom, it's certainly not Mr. Biden. Um, Jesus reigns, amen? amen? And you too should keep your eyes on that promised joyful prize. Think of that Olympic athlete. For four years, he's training 10 hours a day, whatever the sport may be, but when he when he has the gold medal put upon him and he's standing on that pedestal, do you think he's thinking about how hard the last four years were? No. There's a joyful satisfaction. And we need to remember what the psalmist says, in thy presence is fullness of joy. Psalm 16. How much more to stand before the Father and to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into my glory. That's the idea. We must endure. We must look to the prize, to the reward, as it were. Not a reward for our good works, but persevering and completing this. We see Jesus at that time when we enter glory, instantly we're conformed to His likeness. 1 John 3. He is our reward. It's our first two points. Consider Carefully consider Jesus, the future joy. And now let's talk about the motives to finishing the race well. He says there in the end of verse 3, notice the little words, so that. That's called a Hina purpose clause. It's the reason. Consider him who endured such hostility against sinners, against himself. Here's the reason. So that you will not grow weary and lose heart. It continues that athletic metaphor. In fact, the phrase growing weary and losing heart 
was sports lingo in the ancient world where the runners would exhaust, where they, they would collapse in exhaustion. Remember last week I told you about that four-minute mile back in 1954 um, in Vancouver. It was uh, Roger Bannister and John Landry. And Bannister made, Landry made the fatal lapse of conservation by turning around to see how far of a lead he had. But just that, taking his eyes, the other ended up beating him. Well, I watched a video of that. You can Google it and look at that black and white, and they're running, running, running. And as soon as he hit the tape, he literally collapsed. <laughs> literally collapsed. He says here that if we consider Jesus who endured this hostility, we consider Him in light of what we're going through, the reason so that we will not grow weary. We will have that fresh energy pumping through our veins just like our blood. To grow weary means to grow fatigued or discouraged. And and we all know by experience and the hindrance of running the Christian life, a huge hindrance is discouragement and weariness. It's those times of depression, those times of discouragement when we are most often to what? Sit on the sidelines and take a break from the race. This is when we need to consider Jesus. Quitting's not an option. We can't quit. Sometimes it feels like we're dragging on the race, a ball and a chain, but we can't quit. And we can't lose heart. It means to to loosen out or to untie or to dissolve, to relax effort. Figuratively, it just simply means to give up. You're without strength. Whatever you might be suffering now, Maybe it's my grandmother used to tell me, who's now no longer with us, but when she went to the dentist to have a root canal, there was no Novocaine. Now, with Novocaine, you can feel those sharp pains every now and again, right? You can imagine that, but going through something that's extremely painful like that, we consider Jesus and Him hanging on the cross and He despised the shame and all of the pain that he went through. And it's almost as though we can put our own pain aside for a moment. And it gives us encouragement to press on whatever it may be. Sir Winston Churchill, a great leader in London, um, led Britain through its darkest and finest hours, was called to speak at his Alamarta Haro. When the five-foot-five-inch bulldog of a man took the platform, everyone was waiting breathlessly upon his words, and they would never forget what he said. He simply said this, one of his shortest speeches ever. Young gentlemen, never give up. Never give up. Never give up. Never, never, never. And with that, Churchill sat down. Brothers and sisters, that's what the writer of the Hebrews is calling us to do. Never give up. Keep running. Run with endurance. The race that is set before you. We are to diligently live out our faith. Some may be ready to give up, but we can't give up. We must consider Jesus. He who promised is faithful. You know the simplicity of that hymn that's actually in our hymn book, actually. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. We all know it. Look full. In his wonderful face. That doesn't mean go get a crucifix and stare at it, okay? 
look full in his wonderful face, right? Uh, through the eyes of faith from the word. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. In Luke 24, you have that example of those two discouraged disciples. They were at a point where they saw the empty tomb and they still couldn't put together the pieces that Jesus Christ is risen and that he's alive victoriously. And so they're walking like this, probably looking for a chair like that along the road to Emmaus to just give up. And they're so discouraged and their, their, their minds were darkened. And then Jesus comes and walks with them. What a beautiful scene this is. Oh, foolish men, slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary for Christ to suffer those things and to enter his glory? Have you not read Isaiah 53? Have you not heard the words of Moses? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. That he explained is where we get the term hermeneutics. The art of interpretation. Isn't that a fascinating thing? What a Bible study that would have been to be at. Oh, man. Well, what happened? Jesus did for them what we are to do for ourselves is to consider Jesus and all the nuances on and on every page of Scripture. And look in verse 31. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized Him and He vanished from their sight. And then they said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? You know what I find striking here is that they're not like, wow, he vanished and disappeared. That's supernatural, isn't it? They're not focused on that. They're focused on understanding the scriptures, all the nuances of the living word of God. That's their takeaway. We're not our hearts burning as he was explaining the word. That's what impacted them the most. And that's what we are to marvel at as well. Well, the second point under this uh, third point, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. Not yet. What does this contrasting time phrase imply? That with their intense struggle, they have not yet resulted into death. What's the implication? The implication is that they must be prepared for a deadly encounter of which they would have to shed their blood. Of which was mentioned in um, chapter 11, those who were tortured for their faith. You've not yet... You've had your property taken, you've been in prison, you identified with prisoners, you've been mocked and, and all of that, but you've not yet, not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. Your strife against sin has, has, has not entailed to the point of shedding blood just yet. And, and it says you, and you're resisting, you've not yet resisted. It's a, it's a triple compound. It means one standing face to face against. You've not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. Present tense, middle voice, which has the idea that it's a continual struggle against sin. It is for me. I trust it is for you. 
and that it's very personal and that it's in the middle voice. We have personal involvement with this struggle. So sin really is now personified as an opponent. And really the imagery goes from a race to perhaps a boxing ring. You've not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood and you're striving against sin. But so far, they haven't faced this challenge with having to lay down their life. But we know history of Rome and Nero, right? Christians were put to death. Christians were, were eaten by lions for sport and entertainment. It certainly came. So this verse is included here because the Hebrew Christians were tempted to strike back or perhaps even abandon the race altogether. But just as Jesus endured they must endure. Now, I should just say a word, like even in my Bible, it has verses 1 to 3, and then 4 is connected to 5 to 11. And commentators are divided, Bible translators are divided. Does verse 4 go with the, the first three verses, or does it go with this discipline, this exhortation of which we're going to see next week? And I think it connects both. It's actually what we would call a connecting verse. It kind of transitions us from the race to God's discipline of us. And so I, it wasn't until yesterday I decided i got to do it with verses 1 and 3. So anyway, there you have it. A couple points of uh, conclusion. Calculate Jesus in every area of your life, brethren. There was a hymn that goes like this. My hope is in the Lord who gave himself for me and pay the price of all my sin at Calvary. For me he died, for me he lives. And everlasting life and light he freely gives. Charles Spurgeon once again, think of how Jesus wrestled. Think of how he ran. Let your consideration of him nerve you for the struggle. Brace your every muscle of your spirit so that you will be determined that as he won, so will you by divine help of him who is the originator originator and perfecter of our faith. There's no denying that this race of the Christian life is difficult at times. There's no denying that this is a marathon of sorts and that we can be tempted to grow weary and lose heart. But what the writer has set before us is a way, sort of keys of which we can regain new strength. Christian runner must keep the finish line in view. So my brother and sister, we need to remember what our Savior has done before us. He ran this race. He won the prize. Therefore, we will be able to endure. Consider Jesus. It is as you focus on Him that you will endure. 1 Corinthians 10.13 No temptation has overtaken you except for that which is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape. So when we're tempted to give up, when we're tempted, remember God is faithful. He's going to provide that way of escape away from an evil temptation or, or that way of escape with renewed strength to press on. He will do that because He is faithful. Spend time today on the Lord's Day. Spend time meditating on the suffering that Jesus endured, but even more so on the glory that is His 
as he sits at the right hand of God. Spurgeon said, the sight of his crown removes all weight from our crosses. Very simple quote, but isn't that beautiful? As you consider him sitting victoriously, the right hand of God, crowned, the sight of that crown begins to lighten our own afflictions. And you know, to consider Jesus as something that we think is so important, we practice the Lord's Supper here every week. And every week we are presented with the elements of the bread and the cup, and we remember the nuances of His sufferings and in His victory and His resurrection, and we're considering Him and as his, our, our great high priest and His role even in our lives. What a blessing it is to participate in that on a weekly basis. But you have to come early if you want it every week. We have it in the prayer meeting on the first Sunday of the month. Uh, as of last week, we have it in the main service. Let me ask you, who's not in the race? Some of you are not in the race. Some of you are not Christians. Some of you are not following the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of you could care less about a race. I would point you to our catechism question, the end of those that are outside of Christ. You will be judged if you do not confess your sins, repent of your sins, turn from your sins and run to Jesus and believe that his work of dying for sinners is enough to save you and he will save you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this opportunity that you've given us to consider Jesus. And Lord, I pray that these verses would be verses that each one here would want to memorize, would want to meditate on, that when they're ready to give up, would reflect back upon all that we have learned even this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.